Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Big political news this week. Former Vice President Joe Biden has picked Senator Kamala Harris to be his running mate. And even though she was seen as a frontrunner from the beginning, the process to get there was unusual and laborious. There was 11 finalists involved, a panel of lawyers, and tough questions all around. For more on how we got the Biden-Harris ticket, we'll speak to Michael Shearer, national political reporter at The Washington Post. She is the first black, the first Asian to be on a major party ticket, and the first Californian since Ronald Reagan. I think we got to give Nixon and Reagan their due, you know, from a few decades back. Basically, the way this process began was Joe Biden saying, I want to pick a woman for this role. And they drew up a list of more than 20 names and cast a pretty broad net for that person. They had a panel of four people helping them. Those people interviewed each of the more than 20 people with basically a questionnaire, the same set of questions for each person. Questions like, what would your agenda be if you were vice president? What do you think Donald Trump's nickname for you would be? They then presented those findings to Joe Biden and his wife, Jill, in a meeting. And the vice president followed up in one-on-one conversations with the members of this group. And then they narrowed that list down to 11 basically finalists who were then subjected to a much more invasive and deeper vetting. For each of those 11 finalists, there was an individual interview that was conducted in the last nine days by the vice president. There was a team of between 12 and 15 attorneys who were assigned to each person to vet basically everything they'd done in their life, you know, all public records, all public speeches, all controversies, financial matters, basically you name it, everything you've done, you were asked to disclose to the vetting committee to discuss, to explain your spouse's records also were subjected to scrutiny. And then that process ended earlier this week when the former vice president went with Kamala Harris. And up to the end, I think there was some suspense. It's ironic in that this was an enormously laborious process, and he ended up where a lot of people thought he was going to end up from the beginning. It didn't didn't change much. I mean, Kamala Harris was probably a frontrunner or the frontrunner for the job when this all started, and, and, and she ended up with the job. Exactly. And there's all these little bumps along the way, you know, like the debate where she nailed him on some race issues. And, you know, he really did have to hold to heart, not holding any lingering grudges, you know, and and in the end, he could make the right choice for him. But I want to go back to something you said at the beginning where all the candidates were given questions in their initial interviews. What do you think Donald Trump's nickname for you would be? And that's actually such an important question right there, because that's what the president does. He markets you in a specific way, in a negative way, so that people won't trust you or or whatnot. So having that kind of foresight into how the president would attack you is so important. And for Kamala Harris, she's kind of a tough person to pigeonhole. She's a black woman. She's also an Indian American woman. She's the daughter of immigrants. There's a lot of stuff in her background that's going to be tough just to pinpoint on her. So I'm sure that also fared into why she was chosen. I mean, I think there's a couple parts to that question. One is try and work out how the president will attack each of these people. But the other part of it is how they will respond to the attacks. And I think one of the things that the interviewers were trying to get from that question is how prepared and how self-aware are these candidates for what they're about to go through if they are picked for this job? 
people involved in the process of Kamala Harris who had just come through the primary. She's one of the only candidates here who had actually gone through the whole primary process, which is itself a very grueling job interview. Performed very well in that initial meeting, was very confident, knew exactly what she was about, had a good understanding of policy, and was compelling for the people who were talking with her. So I think it was something she was able to pass. Biden, from the start of this process, has said he didn't hold grudges from the primary process. I mean, as you said, Kamala Harris went after him effectively and very frontally in one of those early debates in which she questioned his relationship with segregation of senators and said she'd been personally offended by the fact that he had opposed forced busing programs by the federal government. But their relationship actually did not begin there. She had been very close with Bo Biden, who remains Joe Biden's sort of emotional lodestar here, his son who died of cancer a few years ago. They'd both been attorneys general together at the same time, had been friends, had worked together on big cases. And so they knew each other there. There were also times sort of behind the scenes on the campaign trail, including one moment in October where Biden and Harris's entourage found themselves in the same private airport hangar area. And Joe Biden and her were able to sort of walk away and spend some time with each other. So I think they felt they had a pretty good relationship with each other that had transcended that. And we see that in his choice. I mean, he didn't let those bad feelings linger. And the issue of race, because he initially said a long time ago, yeah, I'm going to pick a woman. I commit to that. But then increasingly, as the process started going, it seemed like the push for him to pick a woman of color started increasing. And there was a lot of different women of different ethnicities on his shortlist. But this kind of also was a thing that was looming throughout the process. Yeah, and I think it built throughout the process. I mean, at the time this process began, the George Floyd incident had not happened in Minneapolis. There weren't these protests around the country. And over the course of the summer, more and more groups came out, more and more public letters were written. Joe Biden himself was taking private meetings with black officials, consulting allies of his who were telling him it's really important for you to pick a black woman here. And, you know, while the campaign maintains that that was not the reason Harris was picked, it sort of structured the environment in which the decision was made. And I think arguably, if he had gone with a white woman like Elizabeth Warren, the Massachusetts Center, or Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, there would have been a backlash in the base of the party that Biden would have had to deal with. Michael Shearer, national political reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Also this week in coronavirus news, Russia's President Vladimir Putin has announced that they have approved the first vaccine for COVID-19. He said that the vaccine, which has been dubbed Sputnik V, works quite effectively, and it has even been given to his daughter. However, many health experts are skeptical because it has not gone through late-stage clinical trials. For more on what we know about Russia's vaccine, we'll speak to Tina Hesman-Say, senior writer at Science News. We know very little about the vaccine, actually. There's no published data on any of the results of the trials that they have done, so we just have the word of Vladimir Putin and the health minister that it is safe and they are saying it is effective, which is not something you can really say at this point since they haven't done the testing to determine whether it's effective. What we do know about it comes from a clinical trial registry. There's an American site called clinicaltrials.gov where a lot of clinical trials from around the world are registered. And according to the information there, 
This is a vaccine that's actually a two-part vaccine. It is two common cold viruses, which are called adenoviruses, that have been engineered so that they make the spike protein from the coronavirus. The spike protein is that uh, knobbly red stuff that you see on the outside of those depictions of the coronavirus. And it's an important protein because it helps the virus latch on to cells and infect them. And since it's on the outside, it's a good target for antibodies to bind to and help block the virus from infecting cells. And it's not like this is some weird revolutionary technology that they're doing, and that's why they have it so much faster. I mean, it's very similar, from my understanding, to the University of Oxford, AstraZeneca vaccine candidate. It works in similar ways. So at least the science is kind of there. It's not like they're trying to create some new thing out of it. A lot of it has to do, and the criticisms are, the lack of testing, the lack of going through a full phase three trial. And apparently they did, I guess, some type of phase two trial with their military, although the amount of people is not what they would usually want to do in the sizes of trials. But they seem like they're ready to go. They've already released it, as I mentioned, to his daughter, a few Russian business people and politicians. Apparently, the business people and politicians have had access to it for quite some time. But they only really started testing this vaccine back in June. Other vaccines that are similar, as you mentioned, uh, Oxford University one, one that was developed by CanSino, which is a Chinese and Canadian concern. And the other one is a Johnson & Johnson pharmaceuticals vaccine, which also uses similar viruses. Those have been in development for longer, and they have already reported phase one and phase two clinical trials. And they are starting testing in about 30,000 people each to try and determine whether or not this actually prevents you from getting the coronavirus. The Russians do not have that data. They have not started that type of testing yet, so they can't really say whether it is effective. The Russian vaccine has been named Sputnik V, you know, a throwback to the uh, satellite back in the day, or it could be Sputnik V for vaccine. We don't, you know, uh, the naming of it is just kind of a, a fun little tidbit there. But the interesting thing is, and you kind of named a lot of the different vaccine candidates, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, there's a bunch of different ones, right? These are all made by pharmaceutical companies. And this Russian vaccine is actually made by the Gamayela Institute, which is kind of their Russian body of science thing. So they're not necessarily doing it with a big company, it seems like. But from my understanding, there's already other countries that are interested in buying this uh, or, or buying doses of this. And I like the way you put in the article, did the Russians win the vaccine race with this? I, I mean... If all is lucky and all goes well and it proves to be effective and safe, this is a big point of national pride for them, I guess, even though the virus is global and all. But I just want to explore that concept, though. Did they win that vaccine race? Well, it's only a win if it really is safe and effective. If it's not, then it could be a big loss for everyone because people might not trust the vaccines that are proven safe and effective later on. But, you know, if even one country develops a vaccine, that's great for everybody because it could potentially mean that we can get back to something resembling normalcy 
if we can protect people against getting infected with this virus. So the more success that people have, you know, whether it's one country or all of these vaccines that are in development, if they seem like they actually offer some protection, that's a win for everybody. So it's not like everybody else is going to stop because the Russians say that they have a vaccine. All of this effort is going to keep going forward, and hopefully we will have multiple vaccines so that everybody who needs one can get one. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how this rolls out. From my understanding, I think they're going to start ramping up production. They want to start giving it out to teachers and doctors first, hopefully by October. So everything's going to start moving really fast pretty soon, and we hope, right, that everything is safe and effective for the people that are getting it. But just another big development in the fight against coronavirus, if it proves to be true. I know there's a lot of skepticism about it, so we'll have to see. Another problem is that you can't really say anything at this point about how long the immunity might last. Even if it does offer some protection, we don't know if this is something that's going to go away in six months or if you need to get a booster shot every year, or maybe it'll be like the measles and you get a shot and you're protected for life. Tina Hessman Say, senior writer at Science News. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Other big political news this week. President Trump on Thursday announced a major foreign policy achievement. Israel and the United Arab Emirates have agreed to establish a full normalization of relations, and Israel will also suspend its annexation plans in the West Bank. This makes the UAE the third Arab country that has active diplomatic ties with Israel. For more on this big announcement, we'll speak to Dave Lawler, world editor at Axios. This in some ways came out of nowhere and in some ways didn't. I'm not sure that anybody was expecting this announcement today um, that the UAE and Israel would officially recognize one another and establish diplomatic relations. As you say, it's been decades since another country, another Arab country, recognized Israel. And so this really is a major breakthrough. It has been going on behind the scenes. The UAE and Israel have been working together, actually, uh, particularly against Iran, but sort of on a broad range of, of issues for a while now. But it's gone on in secret. They haven't been they haven't spoken about it openly. And this is kind of bringing that out into the open. And it really is. It's a landmark announcement. The leaders have spun it a bit differently afterwards, so we have to see how it plays out in practice, but it was a big announcement today. Egypt and Jordan are the only other two Arab countries that have active diplomatic ties with Israel. You did mention that each country was kind of spinning it their own way. Tell us how that plays out, because everybody stands to gain something a little different from this. For President Trump, obviously, a major foreign policy achievement. Uh, This is something he can tout later on before the election comes. But what's in it for Israel? What's in it for the UAE? So Trump put out this statement, which was a joint statement. It was signed by the leaders of all three countries, and it had basically two main points. One was that um, Israel and the UAE, as we mentioned, would, would open diplomatic relations. The other was that Israel would suspend its plans to annex parts of the West Bank, which, as you know, had been very controversial. Um, and so for Trump, he gets to look like a statesman. We have some reporting that he's hoping for a signing ceremony, maybe at the White House, to really tout this as a big diplomatic achievement ahead of the election. Uh, but for Benjamin Netanyahu, who just gave a televised address, this is quite a sensitive matter. He, he leads a right-wing coalition. There's a lot of pressure to move ahead with his campaign promise to annex parts of the West Bank. 
He's now said he'll put that on hold. But what he did was he framed this as temporary. He said, look, Trump said this was part of the deal. We couldn't move ahead on annexations and we can't do it without U.S. support. So I had to put that on hold to get this bigger deal. But that doesn't mean this is off the table going forward. So so he's basically reserving the right to still move ahead with annexations, just not at this time. Uh, For MBZ, the crown prince of the UAE, he emphasized the other point that I got Israel to hold up on annexations, you know, that annexations are suspended. And he downplayed the diplomatic relations side of the deal, saying we've agreed to work toward diplomatic relations, which sounds a lot different than what Trump was saying, which is that this is a done deal. So they've had their own spin to sell it to a domestic and a regional audience. But they are all signed on this same joint statement that Trump gave. So something's got to give to a degree. How important is this for the Trump administration right now? Obviously, in the United States, domestically, we have a huge problem with coronavirus that seems to be top of mind for a lot of people. Obviously, the economy as well, as it's kind of attached to what's going on with the pandemic. And this, a foreign policy issue, how does this improve his standing, I guess, in the country or with winning points for the election? So this might be the only thing Trump does between now and the election that Joe Biden will actually come out and say was a good thing. Joe Biden released a statement saying that it's a, it's a good thing that Israel and the UAE had agreed to normalize relations. So this is something that, you know, Trump can position himself as looking statesmanlike, as the kind of guy who can deliver deals internationally. That has not always been his reputation. You know, he's, he's really pulled the U.S. out of more deals than he's put together, right, internationally. So this is a little bit of a different side to Trump's campaign. You know, foreign policy has not been a huge part of the campaign except for this anti-China drive. So in all of those senses, it's a good thing for Trump. Now you raise the fact that coronavirus is looming over everything. Do I think that there are many voters who in November are going to be thinking about this deal rather than about how the U.S. is doing on coronavirus? Perhaps not. Jared Kushner seemed to be a pretty big figure in this. Uh, He's been working on Middle East peace efforts for more than three years now. How big a part of this deal was he? He was certainly a big part of it. And and one of his efforts has been to bring these Gulf countries and Israel closer together. They have a lot of overlapping interests, particularly they don't like Iran, but also economically it makes sense for them to work more closely together. So he's definitely been trying to get these leaders to talk to one another. He's been trying to improve relations there. You mentioned his Middle East peace plan, which you know was, was kind of dismissed upon release as, as unworkable. Obviously, we don't have peace between the Israelis and Palestinians. And it's important to note that the Palestinians aren't a party to this deal either. So this is not peace in our time in the Middle East. Uh, but in but in terms of this sort of smaller objective, which is getting people that we get along with in the Middle East to get along better with one another, that does seem to have some momentum. Well, in the next few weeks, there's going to be, as you mentioned, hopefully a signing uh, bilateral agreements on all this stuff. I know the president has said he hopes to maybe host some of that. So we'll see if that happens. But mm-hmm. in the meantime, just a good deal for the president and his administration. Dave Lawler, world editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. All right. Thanks so much. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.